episode of Campfire Chatter, I want to talk about the Third Battle of Winchester in Virginia, September 19th, 1864. Now, just for some background on the battle and some, I want to talk about some of the historiography out there about it and some, some of my arguments about the battle itself and its significance. There's a couple excellent books, by, one by Scott Patchen called The Last Battle of Winchester. And he discussed a highly detailed book about the battle, the campaign, from August to the end of September 1864. Basically from where Philip Sheridan takes over command of the Union armies in the Shenandoah Valley in early August. Through the battle, it's a very good book, published by Savas Beatty. Um, check it out. It's definitely worth your a read. It's the only only one that I know of single volume study of the battle itself, and it's well worth your time. The other one is a little bit older from Jeff Wirt from Winchester to Cedar Creek, and it is a excellent one volume look at the campaign in the Shenandoah Valley in 1864 from August through October, and take a look at that one as well. It's been out there since I think the 80s, early 80s, so it's you're all I'm sure many of you are aware of it. And Jeff's contributions to uh, Civil War history are great. He's published a lot of stuff, as has Scott Patch. And I want to talk about um, some of the arguments that I have in my own work about the Battle of Third Winchester and the Battle of Fisher's Hill, which occurred two days, three days later, September 22nd, 1864. The political situation in the North, Abraham Lincoln was on the verge of not being reelected. Northern morale, civilian morale, was very low at this point, and people were very, there was a chance that a peace candidate could be elected, which was George B. McClellan. So the Confederates, on the other hand, we would think that they would be despondent. Many were after the fall of Atlanta, September 2nd, 1864. But the men in Ur Jubal Early's Army of the Valley, which were primarily veterans of the Army of Northern Virginia, they were detached in June 1864 and had been operating in the Shenandoah Valley since then and as well as Maryland. And many of them felt confident. They were mobile, they were winning battles, they were entering Maryland, they threatened Washington, D.C. over the summer. They were feeling pretty confident and believed that as long as they and other Confederate armies could hold out, that there was a good chance that the Confederacy could win its independence. Atlanta falls first two days of September 1864. Now this was a blow to the commercial and transportation system of the Confederacy. It was a morale blow as well, especially for Georgians, However, to the Army of Northern Virginia, it did not have as damaging of an effect on their morale as one would think. The battles of Third Winchester and Fisher's Hill did. So September 16th, 17th, Sheridan received his orders from Grant to finally move on early. Throughout the month of August, the two armies were engaged in a war of maneuver, constantly in contact, no general engagements, some skirmishing going on, and it caused Early and his many of his men to feel a confidence that and disdain for Sheridan that they could beat him at will and that he wouldn't fight. In reality, Sheridan was biding his time. He was waiting for reinforcements to get to him, and he didn't want to bring on a general engagement. So by the time the Third Battle of Winchester happens on September 19th, Sheridan outnumbers Early almost four to one. He's got about 45,000 men. Early has about 15,000. And they meet east of the city of Winchester. Early's army was scattered. 
three of his four divisions were miles away from Stephen Dotson Ramsey's division, which was east and south of the city of Winchester, facing east. By the time he realized that Sheridan was moving on him, he quickly reconcentrated the army, and it resulted in the Battle of Third Winchester, which was a hard fight that many soldiers wrote about afterwards. How hard the fighting was, it was back and forth. Uh, Early's army, Rhodes, Gordon's divisions were heavily engaged, as well as Ramsour's. They received attacks, attacked the Federals, drove them back. And it was a back-and-forth battle, and actually it was, you could say it was a draw, too, of Confederate were winning the battle due to Sheridan's management, poor management of sending in his troops. However, numbers did tell. Early had horrible cavalry that were ill-disciplined, ill-equipped as well. They were vastly outgunned by Sheridan's cavalry and outnumbered greatly. Sheridan's cavalry numbered almost as much as Early's entire army. He had about 10,000 cavalrymen, excellently armed with excellent leadership. And Early's position by the end of the day was in the shape of an upside-down, backwards L with the city of Winchester in between. Early's cavalry was on his left flank, guarding his left flank, as well as some infantry and artillery. Later in the afternoon, Union cavalry come charging down onto Early's left flank and completely routed. That in conjunction with attacks along the entire line drove the Army of the Valley out of Winchester south to south of Strasburg to the strong position of Fisher's Hill, where they dug in. The significance of this is that historians have argued that these two battles helped seal the deal for Lincoln's reelection. That is true. I agree with that. However, there's a greater significance than merely that. The damage that these two battles caused to the morale of the Army of Northern Virginia and Early's men in particular, is important. Large segments of the Army of Northern Virginia had never been routed from a battlefield before. Had they been defeated? Yes. Had some of them been pushed back? Yes, of course. But large sections to the tune of the entire army, or in this case, the Second Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia, had never been driven from a battlefield and routed. This was the first time this happened. That is significant because it damaged the morale of the Army of Northern Virginia like nothing else had before to that extent where it made men start to question themselves as soldiers and their comrades whether they would fight, whether they could still win independence. But it also damaged the, the sense of invincibility that the Army of Northern Virginia had enjoyed for three years of war among themselves, but also in the eyes of their enemies and the federal soldiers. Sheridan's army began to feel finally that we can win, we can beat these guys, and they did. So on September 22nd, 1864, the Battle of Fisher's Hill happens, and it's a worse stampede, and that's the correct term, stampede, that many of the Confederate soldiers used in their letters home describing the battle. Some historians have argued that it was the perfect Union victory. Nothing went wrong. It was perfectly planned, perfectly executed, and the results were outstanding. Between the two battles, Early lost over 5,000 men, large portions of his artillery, but more importantly, the sense that these men could not be defeated, that they could be driven from a battlefield, had just played itself out, and that is significant. One soldier in the 45th North Carolina was Nathan Frazier. He was a substitute from Guilford County. He enlisted in March 1862. He was 37 years old, a 37-year-old farmer, and Frazier would end up surviving the war he made it through Petersburg, Siege of Petersburg and Richmond and came in for his parole in Greensboro, North Carolina in May 1865. So this was a veteran. 
And he wrote his wife between the two battles of their Winchester and Fisher's Hill while the army was resting and recuperating. And he described the death of his commanding officer, Colonel Winston, who was the colonel of the 45th North Carolina, as well as the death of General Robert E. Rhodes, an excellent division commander who was killed placing the brigades of William Ruffin Cox and Cook's Alabama Brigade. So Fraser wrote his wife about the Battle of Third Winchester, writing that we are much, much better prepared at this place for fighting them again than we were on Monday, for we had no breastworks then, and we had to take it open field fashion. I think their force is as much as three, if not four, to our one. We fought them tremendous, but we had to fall back here on the account of their overpowering us the other day. We fell back in good order after fighting them all day till one hour in the night. The greatest loss we sustained was the killed General Rhodes, and we have no division general now. They shot a hole through Colonel Winston's hat crown. We lost 41 men killed, and in my regiment we had one man killed in my little company and two wounded. They cut blood out of me in two places. I never stopped fighting, for I think the Yankees lost as many or more men than we did. I think there was some five or 6,000 men killed on each side. So you can see that intensity of the fight described by Frazier. A lot of men killed. It's a lot. It's an, almost a close estimate. It's about 4,000, a little over 4,000 total casualties. And for the numbers engaged, that's a lot of men. On the 29th, after Fisher's Hill had occurred, and they were, Early's army had retreated farther up the valley around Stanton, Frazier again wrote his wife about the two battles, describing how he was hit in three places and survived and kept fighting. And he wrote, I have passed almost through, if not quite, the hottest battle that has ever been fought during this war. And he continued, One of these fights was the 19th, and the next was at Strasburg, the 22nd of September. We were compelled to retreat or be captured. We were cut to pieces, very much. I went in the fight with my company, with besides myself, and come out with only two guns and three men, myself and Sam Harrell of Greensboro. Is all that come out. And all the rest wounded and captured, but two were killed. And he goes on to say, and this is very interesting, Considering the magnitude of the Battle of Gettysburg, Fraser writes that Third Winchester was one of the hottest times I ever seen. Gettysburg could not hold it alight while it lasted. We fought one whole day until 10 o'clock at night. We retreated back to near Stanton. We are now expecting another bloody battle in a short time. That's an interesting comparison, comparing the Battle of Third Winchester to the Battle of Gettysburg for its intensity. And the 45th North Carolina was heavily engaged July 1st, 1863 at the Battle of Gettysburg, and suffered heavy casualties there as well. So it's interesting, and he had survived through the Overland Campaign, which, as we all know, was a great bloodbath on both sides. So for him to compare one of the hot, hardest fights, Gettysburg, to Third Winchester, gives us a glimpse of the intensity of the combat at Third Winchester as well. Brian Grimes, who was a brigadier general commanding Fraser's regiment and several other North Carolina regiments, wrote that as a result of the battles of Third Winchester and Fisher's Hill, for the first time in his entire military life during the Civil War, that he thought that independence was not to be gained. His, he despaired of vic, final victory. And Grimes was a veteran since the Battle of Seven Pines in May, June 1862. He'd been wounded many times, led a crack Regiment of North Carolinians, the 4th North Carolina, up through Spotsylvania in May 1864 when he was promoted to command the Brigade of North Carolinians, previously commanded by Brigadier General Junius Daniel, who had been killed at Spotsylvania. So Grimes had been through a lot of action, had seen a lot, was very confident. He hated the, the Yankees, was definitely a Confederate loyalist, 
but and had always been confident as judged by his letters to his wife. But after the result of these two battles, he began to lose confidence that Confederate independence was possible. So we see that's just one example of not only the intensity of the battle of Third Winchester, but also of the results and significance of those two defeats at Third Winchester and Fisher's Hill on even a stalwart Confederate optimist like Brian Grimes. So now I want to switch over to a topic that's near and dear to me, battlefield preservation, specifically the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation, which is responsible for interpreting and preserving much of the Third Winchester battlefield that exists today. Unfortunately, much of the battlefield is lost to industrial and urban um, suburban sprawl from Winchester, as well as Interstate 81. But core areas of the battlefield have been preserved by the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation. And now there are several hundred acres of preserved land with interpretive signage and trails available for us to enjoy and learn and experience the battlefield. Core areas that include the West Woods, the Middle Field, as well as the Huntsbury Farm area are all preserved today thanks to battlefield preservationists, generous individuals who donate their time and money to help preserve battlefield properties. In this area, the battlefield that is preserved includes the areas where Gordon and Rose Divisions in the 6th and 19th U.S. Army Corps faced each other in what Nathan Fraser called one of the hottest fights he had ever been in. Other sites include Star Fort and Fort Collier. Those are also preserved and available to be toured. And it's very important for us to preserve these battlefields, not just for present preservation, but for the future, for future students of the war to learn about these battles and can see what took place by visiting them. And it's the same for us. We can visit them today and see what happened at these places and learn more about the battlefields. It's hard to learn just from reading books when you can see where things happened, where events happened. So it's important for us to continue to preserve these sites. But recently I sat down with Nick Placerno. He's the chairman of the board of the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation. He's been a longtime friend of mine and supporter. He was, he's been very active in preservation Battlefield Preservation for many years with the Civil War Trust, Museum of the Confederacy, and was recently retired Chief of Police from Bridgewater College. He's a noted historian in his own right, and I sat down with him recently at Bridgewater College's Civil War Institute, and we discussed the Battle of Third Winchester, as well as the preservation opportunities that are occurring there. So for more information, please check out ShenandoahAtWar.org for more on the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation and their efforts and ways you can join and donate and what you can do to help preserve battlefields. So without further ado, here's my interview with Nick. We are sitting here today with Nick Paserno here attending Bridgewater College's annual Civil War Institute. He was gracious enough to take some time to talk with us today about battlefield preservation, some current projects going on, and how they relate to the Army of Northern Virginia. So Nick, thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm glad you invited me. Um, tell me a little bit about your background in battlefield preservation. How did that, what, what, what about that got you interested in preserving battlefields? Well, I remember as a child going to Gettysburg and going to Fredericksburg, and I remember at Gettysburg we stayed at a hotel near Lee's headquarters, and I always thought, wouldn't it be nice if, Lee, if Lee's headquarters was preserved without having a hotel around there? I joined the Civil War Trust and became interested in battlefield preservation through them. Then when I moved to Virginia from New England in 2002, I was asked to uh, join the board of the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation. And I was there for about uh, 
two or three years I got involved, I took, uh, I spearheaded the effort to preserve the Huntsbury property at, at the battlefield of Third Winchester. And shortly after that, I was elected vice chairman and then chairman. I served as chairman until about 2009, 2010. And then I was, um, I was appointed chairman emeritus for the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation. A short time after that, they asked me if I'd come back into leadership, and I did. I became chairman about a little over three years ago, and I'm, uh, I'm sorry, a little less than three years ago. I'm serving my last year as chairman of the board of the Battlefields Foundation. And I come to the foundation with a unique ethos on battlefield preservation, that being as a hardcore purist. And, you know, I feel that battlefields are reverent places. They're, they should be venerated. And they should look like they did much as when the soldiers left them at the end of the battle. And that's the best way to interpret those battlefields because, you know, they're, they're cemeteries. Great things happen in those fields. We shouldn't abuse them. We should use ethical stewardship standards to keep the battlefields preserved. And I've, um, I've, kept that, uh, I've kept that in the forefront with the Battlefields Foundation. So you mentioned the Huntsbury Farm at 3rd Winchester Battlefield. Um, what about the Huntsbury property and that area of the 3rd Winchester Battlefield was so important to the, the battle as a whole? What, basically, what happened there? What did the Army of Northern Virginia do there? What did they accomplish there? Um, was it the crux of the battlefield? Was, I mean, what was the importance of that section? Well, in the afternoon of September 19, 1864, troops under Jubal Early, particularly uh, John Gordon, Cullen Battle, Zebulon York, uh, were entrenched uh, in a gully. They had fallen back to a gully, a high point in the battlefield. And General, General Emery detached a division of the 19th Corps to attack the, the uh, Confederate position. It was the 2nd Division under General Cuvier Grover. As he attacked the Confederate position, the position the Confederates held at that point was strong. And the inflate of fire was, was remarkable. So remarkable that it caused the 2nd Division to flee. And they ran backwards away from the Confederates towards the 1st Division of the 19th Corps, uh, commanded by uh, uh, Davis, but no, I'm sorry, William Dwight. Dwight's men had a difficult time firing upon the Confederates because you had Cuvier Grover's men between them. When they finally were able to get Grover's men out from, from being an impediment, there was a charge, there was one New York regiment that, that, that pretty much led the vanguard of the troops, and that was the 114th New York. Well, they faced the same, um, veloc you know, same velocity of fire that, that, the, that, that Cuvier uh, Grover's division faced. It was so bad for these men from New York that they had to roll on the ground to load their muskets and then they would never stand because standing would be a, a, a sure way to be, uh, should be wounded or killed. They got reinforced by several other regiments of the, of the uh, 1st Brigade, 1st Division, 19th Corps. And the fighting went on there for about two or three hours. Several of the regimental commanders were wounded. One of the regimental commanders, the, the commander of the 114th New York, his name was Samuel Perley, had a cannon shell explode beneath him. Um, and that goes, to, that goes to the second reason why the Huntsbury property was important. Because when the Union troops were advancing into the middle field, like Grover, like Dwight, on the other side of Red Bud Run, which was a small creek, on the north side of that was, was the Confederate artillery under James Breathitt. Breathitt was firing um, reed shells, shrapnel shells, across into the woods, into the first woods, and then into the middle field. 
The men had to contend with falling limbs, with splinters. Many of the men were injured by, these, by the onslaught of artillery, and as eventually, the Union, eventually Emory had Breathitt's battery dislodged by Henry DuPont. But while the Breathitt's battery was engaged, it, it, was dif it was difficult for them. So you had that there, and the, and the last thing was you had two future presidents on the Huntsbury property. You had Rutherford B. Hayes, who commanded uh, a division there. He was formerly colonel of the 23rd Ohio. And one of his lieutenants of the 23rd Ohio was William McKinley, who was an aide to Rutherford B. Hayes during the battle. So it's a Civil War battle where two future U.S. presidents participated in the battle. So that, that Huntsbury property was, was, was important. So a great deal of action. If we did not buy it, it was being offered for sale in, in lots uh, to put a housing project in. Hmm. And if you put a housing project in, you lose its, you lose its historic integrity, you lose the topographical features, uh, you lose, whatever you lose, you can never replace. It's irreplaceable. And as I said, battlefields are unique. Battlefields aren't transient. They're there forever. Something happened there that made them that way. Housing projects, playgrounds, other things can, can be placed anywhere else. But battlefields can't be moved. So as I said earlier, there are cemeteries. Great things occurred in those fields. It's like Joshua Chamberlain once said, people we know not of and know not of us will come to these deathless fields and ponder. And that's what many people do. You, me, we go there, we look upon those fields, and we envision what it looked like in 1864. So there are any... The Third Winchester Battlefield, is, there, is it mostly preserved? Is there a lot of other, is there any other preservation opportunities? I know if you can, if you visit up there and you go through 80, on Interstate 81, um, visit the town of Winchester, a lot of it's taken up by the city and also by the interstate. Is there any other properties that the foundation is currently working on to preserve around there? Well, that's the first question about, about other properties around Third Winchester. We have... We have preserved about 700 acres. It is the largest preserved Civil War battlefield in the Shenandoah Valley. But it doesn't mean that we have it all. Fortunately, adjoining our property is a modular home park that was placed in there about oh, 20 years ago called Regency Lakes. Those homes were built where the 6th Army Corps fought and fought other troops um, under Jubal Early. There was you know, the place called Ash Hollow and, and others. It was in part of that morning-afternoon phase. It was also a, a vast, vast sea of misery that occurred in that property. You had, some, you had at least one Union general that was killed there, uh, David Russell. Uh, George Patton's grandfather was, was killed there with the 37th Virginia. And they put in modular home parks. They even rerouted some of the waterways, some of the streams there, to make a fountain that people can visit. So that battlefield has been transformed into something it shouldn't have been and we can never replace it with. We can never replace those fields again and have them look like they did in 1864. So that's, that, that's a defeat. But the Third Winchester Battlefield, the Huntsbury property, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the land around Hackwood, and, and the land that the Civil War Trust purchased that we now own, that's a victory. Uh, because of the sprawl in Winchester, we were fortunate to save as much as we had, and, and we keep on saving Battlefield. So to answer your other question, you know, we, we, we uh, bought recently um, the area known as the West Woods. It's right near there where Robert Rhodes was killed. As a matter of fact, we, we put up a monument there. So it's an area where North Carolina, fought, North Carolina troops fought. It's, um, it's about 36 acres. It was one of the most expensive properties we ever purchased. 
It's right along the interstate. They just put up a storage unit facility adjoining the property near, that, near the mall. But all that woods behind there uh, saw a great deal of action. It was significant because, you know, the action went, you know, there was no interstate back then. A good deal of Battle of Third Winchester was fought where the interstate is now and across the road. And you had the Army of West Virginia was involved. You know, they, they were involved in, uh, on the, on the uh, Huntsbury property as well. So this is land that's been adversely affected, but there's some small pieces of land that we're still able to get. We were, we were just recently able to add 10 acres of Star Fort. And that was done because a young man who works for us lives near Star Fort. He volunteers and a gentleman walked over to him and he saw him walking around Star Fort and he said, what, what, do, you, what do you do here? And he says, well, I, I volunteered to preserve this fort. The man was so really taken back by the enthusiasm of this young man and that what he did for us that uh, he contacted the Battlefield Foundation because he owns all the land around Star Fort and he agreed to sell it to us. So we just, we just uh, inked that contract and we're going to be adding that to the Star Fort holdings. So tell me a little bit about uh, Star Fort. What happened there during the Battle of Third Winchester? Was that a pivotal part of the battlefield? Was it contiguous to the West Woods or the Huntsbury Tract? Uh, what, where was that exactly? Well, it was, it, it was close to all of it, and, 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 and it played a role. You had a, it was a famous charge by the colonel of the 14th Pennsylvania Cavalry by the name of James Schoomaker. And he was awarded the uh, Medal of Honor for that charge, and we dislodged, dislodged a Confederate position over there. What's interesting about that is his Medal of Honor says for gallantry, the Congress of the United States for gallantry at Star Fort. But when you look at his Medal of Honor files, the National Archives, like they did about a year ago, it wasn't Star Fort that he attacked. It was Fort Jackson, which was a little bit further on. Now, he had to go through Star Fort to get to Fort Jackson. But all the letters from all the contemporaries of his, other participants of the charge, note that it was Fort Jackson. But Star Fort definitely played a role there. And, and, it, and it, was a, um, it was a gallant charge. Uh, it's, it's been featured in a, in a great deal of artwork and such, and it led to the Confederate troops who were occupying that area to, to re retreat back towards the city of Winchester. And when that happened, that was the left of Jubal Early's line. It was, it was the left. And so when that happened, it basically unraveled the entire line. So once that occurred and you had elements of Early's army starting to retreat back, and basically forming a backwards upside down L around the city of Winchester where did in the latter phase of the battle where did the Huntsbury track farm and the West Woods come into play like where what what was going on there at this latter stage once it was once the battle was reaching its ending the latter stage sees um, the army of West Virginia under George Crook come onto the field into the middle field and it's, it's his numbers, his, his mass of troops from the Army of West Virginia actually lead to the, to the retreat of Gordon's men back towards the city of Winchester. And, of course, Jubal Early forming that upside-down L. So you have, you have the retreat, and they're, they're fighting at an angle. When you go to the battlefield, it's not a battle that's fought straight on because Winchester, as you're looking, Winchester is to the south and to the west of the battlefield. So the troops are now facing south and west. They're not facing directly west. They're going southwest. Union troops. Union troops. And the, and the right. Confederate troops are falling back that way. So Crook's Army of West Virginia, due to the strength of that army, and, and remember, one thing about the Shenandoah Valley Battlefield, I mean, Shenandoah uh, Valley Battles of 1864, it was all about numbers. I mean, when you think about Cedar Creek, uh, 
Philip Sheridan had more men in his cavalry than Jubal Early had in his entire army. So it's about numbers. You get the Army of West Virginia now in the field, you got the 6th Corps, you have two divisions of the 19th Corps, and now you got the Army of West Virginia. It was a gallant stand for Early's army, but they couldn't withstand the onslaught, and they fell back towards Winchester and beyond. So it was a crucial battle in the 64 Shenandoah Valley Camp, 1864 Shenandoah Valley Battle Campaign. Um, are there any other preservation opportunities going on around Winchester that we can keep an eye out for in the future, or is this is it kind of on the hush hush right now? Well, there are some we just can't discuss because we're in negotiations with landowners. Right. But what we're eager to learn from from folks that really share our vision for battlefield preservation is to be on the lookout for land in and around Winchester in which the third battle was fought, or the second. Uh, there's very little land left from the first battle in, the, in May of 1862. Uh, but the third battle of Winchester offers the most opportunities, and the second to a degree. So we're actively seeking land there. Uh, we, we work with our federal partners with the National Park Service and the American Battlefield Protection Program to purchase this land. Uh, so if people know of land that's played a role in a battle that may be available for sale, we certainly encourage them to contact us at the Battlefield Foundation. Great, and you guys are doing great work, and um, we can tour the most of the a lot of the Thurl Winchester battlefield now thanks to groups like the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation and the Civil War Trust, which is now called the American Battlefields Trust, as they now preserve War of 1812 and Re American Revolutionary War sites in the United States. Well, Nick, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you certainly enlighten us on preservation at Third Winchester Battlefield, and it's good. It's always good news to have preservation successes where we can we can all go and visit and learn about these battles by visiting and walking in the footsteps of these men who fought. And we hope people do. At Third Winchester, we're going to have our visitor centers going to be open uh, soon. We have more than six miles of trails with interpretive markers. We're also going to have something new there that you're probably not aware of yet in our discussions. We're going to have a, we're going to have posts throughout the battlefield that when you arrive there, you you place a phone call and that phone call will tell you, you'll, you'll hear exactly what occurred there. And so there'll be, there'll be a narrative, a narration rather, at some of the interpretive markers around the battlefield. So these are things we're looking at. We're looking at the virtual reality um, con the concept there. So we, we welcome people to visit the battlefield. These are battlefields to be shared, battlefields to be visited, and battlefields to be respected. And we hope that, we hope that uh, people come there and enjoy it as we all have. Excellent. I agree completely. Well, thank you, Nick, for uh, joining us today around Campfire Chatter, and we hope to speak with you again sometime. Thank you very much.